Hey folks, Luke here. I have another episode for you this week. This one I'm going to do on pain and injuries. And the reason why is because, you know, I do these Q&As every week on my Instagram and I get a lot of questions around pain and injuries and stuff like that. And I'm not really qualified to be dealing with that, especially not over the internet. But I do know a little bit about pain and I'd like to just kind of talk through. I think this will probably be more of a food for thought kind of exercise as we go through on this episode. I do have a bit of an approach for dealing with pain and injuries that is sort of a general guideline. So there'll certainly be some practical stuff here, but I think it's mostly going to maybe challenge your thoughts on what, what pain is and how to approach Uh, injuries in general. So hopefully it is thought-provoking. Please let me know if it is. And as always, I'll I'll ask you to share it and give me a rating if you find it interesting. Uh, Before we get into it, I am still working on that sort of programming course that I have in the works. I got quite a lot of responses and a fair few people actually uh, sent me some emails on some ideas of things that they would like to see, which was really, really helpful. So thank you very much for that. I'm going to keep working away on that. I don't have a release date yet, but I'll have some more information for you before the end of the year. So anyway, let's get into it. I want to start with defining pain uh, because you know pain's experienced by everyone at some point in their lifting career, especially. So learning about it is pretty important, I feel. Um, we could define pain as an unpleasant sensory or emotional experience that's associated with either actual tissue damage or potential tissue damage. So it doesn't necessarily mean that there's actually physical damage being done to a tissue for us to be able to experience pain. And that's going to be a theme as we kind of move forward throughout this episode. It doesn't mean that your experience of pain reflects the level of tissue damage if there is damage there. So that's a really, really important point. And now there's a lot of things that kind of contribute to pain. I think traditionally we we sort of always thought about, well, you know, a tissue is being damaged and, you know, maybe you get a muscle tear or a bone break or something like that. And that's really the origin of pain. And so something's kind of mechanically or, or biologically been damaged, structurally damaged. But the emerging evidence points to a biopsychosocial model of pain, often shortened to BPS. You might have seen this around the traps a little bit. Basically, this model accounts for sensory factors, emotional factors, uh, cognitive and social components, as well as tissue damage when we're referring to pain. And so you can start to see that it becomes a lot more multifactorial than the sort of traditional model of like, oh, yeah, you tore a muscle and now that's why it hurts. That's still part of it, but it's not the only thing that's there. And to kind of understand why this is the case, we have to understand a little bit more about how we actually physically perceive pain. So there's this concept of nociception. So nociception is like the perception of unpleasant stimuli. So we we actually have um, nociceptors and they sense unpleasant stimuli, which could represent potential danger to tissues. So uh, we could get extremes in temperature. So extreme hot or extreme cold is very uncomfortable. And that could indicate that, you know, your tissue is getting damaged. Um, pressure, extreme pressure. There are also physical and chemical signals that can contribute to this. So the idea is basically that this signal is sent from the tissue itself where the stimulus is occurring to the spine. The spine then processes that signal and decides if that needs to be elevated up to the brain. 
and within the spine, the signal can kind of be turned up or, or turned down. Uh, if the signal does arrive at the brain, then the brain's got to integrate that nociception signal with a bunch of other data that's coming in at any given time. There are these huge, huge streams of data that are arriving at the brain at every given microsecond. And when a nociception signal arrives at the brain, it's integrated alongside all of this other information. So the brain kind of makes a subconscious decision about whether this signal that it's receiving is a true threat or not. And then that decision is affected by other arriving signals. So the sort of nociception is just one aspect of the pain experience. If you, if you combine a bunch of different pieces of data, it could change your experience completely based on you know, what you're seeing and smelling and hearing and all this other stuff at the same time. So nociception kind of acts as like a surveillance system. It's like an alarm. So when an alarm is tripped, you have to go it out, go and check it out and then interpret the situation. So that's basically what's happening with the brain. We get this nociception signal. The brain then looks at it and goes, hmm, is this like a real alarm or is this just like my alarm got tripped for no reason? I better go check it out and interpret the situation. So in this way, we can kind of tune that original signal that we get from the tissue, right? Um, so sometimes we can get innocuous signals being mistaken for potential danger or for tissue damage. And sometimes the perception of those signals can change over time. But the main concept here is that nociception, this perception of an unpleasant stimulus from a tissue that goes up to the brain, is just a warning signal. The brain itself is the one that is interpreting that signal and in the cases of like persistent pain it might mean that your brain is just really hypersensitive and it's kind of just tuned to recognize things as threats that aren't actually really that threat that threatening so you get a little bit more sensitive to those stimuli and the interesting interesting thing about this is that if that's the case it means we can actually adjust our sensitivity to pain so Interpreting the alarm is essentially a really important skill. If we have a smoke alarm that goes off, does it actually tell you if there's a fire or not? No, all it's doing is detecting smoke. It could be that you burnt your toast. doesn't mean that your house is on fire, right? But you have to go check it out. Does a security alarm tell you how many intruders there are? No, it doesn't. It could be that you have one of those, like, what are they called? The Nest, uh, the sort of doorbell, doorbell cameras. It could be someone stealing your Amazon delivery off the front porch or it could be a cat that's triggering the alarm or like a leaf that flutters past. But you've got to go check it out if the alarm goes off, right? So I guess the questions to ask is, can alarms go off for no apparent reason? Yes, they can. Can your response to an alarm change over time? If someone keeps ringing your do doorbell or prank calling you, eventually you kind of go, ugh, it's just a prank caller again and maybe you, you're on less alert every time it happens, right? So uh, pain is an alarm, but interpreting the alarm is an important skill. So with that said, that's kind of the framework that we want to approach pain with in general. It's just an alarm. It doesn't tell us necessarily that there is structural damage to a tissue. It might, but not always. And sometimes even if there is structural damage to a tissue, it's not as bad as the pain might make it seem. Um, so from that sort of framework, 
we now go into the idea that pain is multidimensional and we can make really powerful associations with pain. So I don't know if you've had this before, I'm sure you have, where like a smell can have a specific association or like how a song can bring back really vivid memories of the time when you were listening to that music a lot. So we can link certain conditions or situations or emotions with the experience of pain. Um, to give a really practical example of this, if you've always experienced back pain when you do like a back squat, you might start to associate that movement pattern with feeling pain at a certain part of the movement, for example. So you can start to make these associations even though there might really be nothing tangible going on there. And sometimes it means that like a normal stimulus will lead to an overreaction and we call this sensitization. So a small nociception signal just gets amplified out of proportion. Sometimes the opposite situation can occur as well. You can have habituation to a signal. So um, to give a practical example of this, maybe uh, if you stand in a hot shower, it suddenly starts to feel more tolerable as you get used to it and you can turn it up a bit hotter and then you get used to it and you can turn it up a bit hotter and you get more used to it uh, <laughs> to the point where like any person who's not used to it going into that same, you know, you leave the, the temperature on the same for the next person that comes in, they're like, Jesus Christ, how's this, how'd you shower in that? How do you not peel your skin off? But you've just gotten used to that signal over time. And this same concept applies for pain management. You can get used to stuff and you can tune down a signal of discomfort. Now, the interesting thing about pain is that it can actually sort of reorganize your brain. So the brain controls movement and how it perceives your body in space. We call that proprioception. But pain can influence your awareness of your body and it alters sort of how your brain controls movement and its awareness of itself in space. Like think about it if you maybe, let's say you stub your toe or something, like you're going to walk a little bit differently with a bit of pain in your toe, right? Uh, and so I guess the idea here is that pain can travel, it can make some areas feel tight or out of place or make it harder to execute certain movements. And that's often just to do with this cortical reorganization where your brain kind of perceives areas a little bit differently and rearranges how it controls movements as a result of that. And the key with this is that we can actually improve this or we can change it with mental and physical training. So if you sort of develop a particular quirk in how you run because you've previously experienced knee pain, with training and exercise and uh, mental training as well, you can potentially alter that back again. So I think sometimes there's a sort of chicken and egg thing where uh, you might get some sort of an injury or a pain perception, some sort of event, and maybe you go and get it checked out at a physio or something like that, and they go, oh, yeah, yeah, um, you know, your glutes are really weak or your hip flexors are really tight, and that must be why your knees are hurting. Well, it might be that, but it also might be that your knee is hurting a little bit and now you've altered your gait or some muscles have tightened up and others haven't uh, as a result of that. And therefore, you know, it's a little bit of a chicken and egg. So just to kind of um, expand a little bit on that. Now, talking about the sort of damage, tissue damage and pain, um, you know, we have these mechanical or biological origins of pain that are certainly very real. And I think this biopsychosocial model sometimes has a little bit too much emphasis on the psychological part and the social part and not enough on the bio part, the biological origins of pain. But 
it's also really important to understand that the mechanical or the biological origins of pain are probably a lot less prevalent than what most people believe. So there's a few studies that demonstrate this. A study done in 2014 looked at a bunch of athletes under 22 and 96% of these athletes under the age of 22 showed abnormal changes on an MRI, which seems crazy. I mean, they're under 22, right? And they have these abnormal changes on an MRI, 96% of them. They were all pain-free. Another study from 2015 looked at uh, 20-year-old subjects and they found that 37% of their 20-year-old subjects had obvious disc degeneration in their spine, but they had no pain despite of this. And another study in 2016 found that 57% of 20 to 50-year-olds had cartilage tears in their hips with no pain. So what these results are showing us, and there's plenty more studies like this, that degeneration, abnormal scans, disc bulges, all these sorts of things are actually pretty common when you do any sort of imaging, but they don't always equate to less function or a pain experience. In fact, some people go in and get a scan for something completely unrelated and a scan comes back and the the doctor might say, oh, actually, uh, you have a bulging disc. And you'd be like, oh, I never even realized that. And I would have never known unless I'd gotten, gotten the scan for an unrelated issue. So I guess the key here is that imaging is <laughs> can often show like mechanical damage or abnormalities, but it doesn't always result in a loss of function or pain. And sometimes small injuries will hurt a lot. I used the example of stubbing your toe before. And sometimes major structural damage doesn't really hurt at all, which is really, really interesting. And it starts to show us that although pain can have a mechanical component or a biological component, uh, the degree of tissue damage does not always equate to the amount of pain that you feel, which I've mentioned a couple of times now, right? So damage or mechanical changes in the body aren't irrelevant, but they're also not the whole picture. Pain's poorly related to damage. Pain can be tuned down or resolved without any structural changes occurring. I mean, I'll give an example. I had long-term lower back pain, and when I was initially diagnosed and did my, my scans and stuff. I was told, yeah, you have a bulging disc and it's only going to get worse and that's why. Well, if that's only gotten worse, it's been 10 years or more since I had those scans and my back pain is better than it's ever been. So there's a decoupling of that prognosis and my actual experience of pain and function. Um, so pain can be tuned down without any structural changes occurring. Now, damage might interact with other things in your life as well. Like you may have no control over tissue damage, but there are some other aspects of pain that we're going to talk about that you can control to a great extent. So certainly you might roll your ankle or tear a muscle or have some kind of joint degeneration or something like that. Um, but ultimately that damage is not really something that you have a lot of control over aside from letting it heal where possible. But there are other aspects of pain that you can control. So I think our goal in managing pain and injuries is really to try and tune our sensitivity to pain. So we want to control the factors that sensitize us to pain. And we want to build up a tolerance or a pain threshold like I described before with the hot shower. So with that said, there's a lot of stuff that can potentially contribute to pain. And as pain persists, it becomes less and less about structural damage. Most structural damage is healed or generally resolved within a few weeks, maybe at most a couple of months. 
But as pain persists past that, and a lot of people continue to get pain for a long time, it becomes less and less about structural damage and more about some of these other factors. So again, going back to the biopsychosocial model, the biological model of pain would say things like training stress, physical damage, that kind of thing is contributing to pain, mechanical factors that we've been speaking about. But we also have a whole slew of psychological and social contributors to pain as well. So for this to kind of describe it, uh, I'd like to have you picture a bucket, right? So this bucket is essentially your capacity to tolerate various contributors to pain or various stresses. So you can have a lot of emotional or uh, physical or social stresses without pain, but a sudden increase in that might cause your buckets to overflow and then it's sort of the straw that breaks the camel's back, so to speak. You suddenly start experiencing pain. Um, And so some of the stuff that can contribute to filling up your bucket are things like the biological contributors to pain, training stress, physical damage, that kind of stuff. Uh, You can also get psychological contributors, things like mental stress. So it could be stuff at work, could be financial related, could be emotional, maybe you break up with your partner or something like that. Psychological stuff can also include your attitude and beliefs around pain. And you see this quite a lot in terms of Uh, the way people think about their bodies. Uh, If you have an attitude towards your your body that is, uh, it's fragile or that, you know, a certain injury is difficult to recover from or that you just sort of expect to get pain based on a prognosis that you've been given, then those things can actually contribute to your experience of pain as well. There's also social stuff, which is kind of similar to the psychological attitude and beliefs around pain, but it's a little bit more uh, broad, I suppose. It includes things like societal norms around pain, like, oh, everybody knows that um, if you get back pain, you probably have tight hip flexors. Everybody knows that if you slouch at your desk, you're going to get neck pain because it's bad posture. These are sort of uh, you know conventional wisdom that might contribute to your expectations around pain. There's also stuff like social support. So uh, it kind of ties in a little bit to stress, but if you don't have a lot of social support, then that can make it more difficult to deal with various stresses and that sort of stuff. So your bucket might be filling up from false beliefs or a lack of support or frustration with your injury or social isolation or work stress or anxiety or fear of movement, um, those sorts of things. And there may be some factor that kind of pushes you over the edge maybe you have a particularly hard period at work or a particular hard training phase or something like that that causes the bucket to overflow and then you start to experience more pain or pain in the first place and so i guess the key here is that the thing that causes the pain or or causes a greater experience of pain is not always those biological things it's not always physical damage or training stress and even if you do get some kind of acute stressor some kind of injury that's like physical in nature uh, your experience of pain and how quickly you recover from it and how long that pain persists can be affected by things like your mental stress your attitudes and beliefs your social support and that kind of stuff so it's important to understand that those are really the things that we have a lot more control over than You know, if we go out running and we happen to trip over a rock and hurt ourselves, you know, because there's not a lot you can do about that if there is some structural damage there. Um, But just kind of going back again to some of the things you might experience that's going to be challenging around pain are things like altered function. So when you when you get pain, you're going to have these system wide changes and 
you might start to move differently, how you feel is different. And so you might feel that some areas are tight or sore. You might have uh, the sense that some bones are out of place or joints are less stable or something like that. But uh, these changes are often individual. So there are some common threads in pain diagnosis, like people often refer to, like if you go and see some kind of practitioner, whether it's an acupuncturist or a chiropractor or an exercise physiologist or a physio or something like that, they might start to describe things like posture or weak glutes, tight hips or um, you know knots in your fascia or scar tissue or your feet are flat or your core is weak or one leg's longer than the other or you have these muscle imbalances or something like that. And all of these are actually assumed dysfunctions uh, that can exist in people with absolutely no pain whatsoever. So it's difficult, again, from a chicken and egg scenario to say that, oh yeah, it's flat feet that are causing your knees to cave in and that's causing your hip pain or something like that. Um, that might be a part of the whole story, but it also might not be, even though it's like a commonly assumed sort of dysfunction. And a lot of these common biomedical explanations for pain actually have very, very, very little evidence behind them. In fact, you'd be incredibly amazed at how much of these things exist in people already that show no dysfunction and no signs of pain. And in fact, some of the people that display the biggest quote-unquote muscle imbalances or um, you know, strange movement patterns are elite athletes <laughs> because they do the same movements over and over and over again. Uh, and, and they end up with massive muscle imbalances or weird postural changes and stuff like that. And they tend to be the people that function at the highest level uh, than, than any of us, which is pretty interesting. Um, actually, I might as well transition into posture from here because it's a, it's a pretty big one. And this is a really commonly held belief. Uh, your body's dynamic. It's a dynamic, adaptable ecosystem. And we tend to just adapt to the physical activities and the world around us that we participate in. And Thinking about that, there's actually no perfect posture. Being in one posture for a long time can cause pain or discomfort, and that's totally normal. Like, if you stand on your feet all day, guess what? Your feet's going to hurt. Your back's probably going to hurt. If you um, sit upright, even if you try and uh, sit in so-called perfect posture, like if you sit upright with a straight back and shoulders back and down and all this sort of stuff, that gets really uncomfortable after a while, right? Like, there's a reason for that. There's no perfect posture. If you slouch all day, maybe you also get some discomfort there. It's more the fact that spending a lot of time in a particular posture can cause pain or discomfort. It's not that there's one that's better than the other, so to speak. There's no single ideal posture. We just kind of need to move between them as needed. And we have a huge amount of options available to us. Uh, in fact, things like sitting and posture are very, very, very poorly linked with pain in the literature. Now, that doesn't mean that sometimes if you spend a lot of time sitting at your desk, you might notice an increase in, you know, back pain or hip pain or whatever it is. You know, when I sit on a, on a flight, my knees start to ache because I can't stretch them out. I can't move my legs as much. Like that stuff still definitely exists. I'm not saying that doesn't contribute to discomfort or pain, but I'm saying that uh, to say that sort of your posture causes your pain is probably not that accurate in most cases. So that kind of also aligns with the idea around structural asymmetries or imbalances. Every single person on the planet is asymmetrical. Like our actual biology is asymmetrical. We have more organ mass on one side compared to the other. Your heart's more on the left. 
you know. <laughs> um, so we have these inherent structural imbalances that is normal for everybody. And even where our muscles attach on, on bones on different side of the body. So, you know, where my biceps attach on my left arm is different to on my right arm. The length of those bones might be naturally different. It doesn't uh, mean that we've got going to get pain there or that it's going to cause some sort of dysfunction. In fact, high-level athletes, like I mentioned before, are generally the least symmetrical people, more imbalanced than the average person, yet they tend to perform at a much higher level uh, despite all of that, maybe even as a result of that sometimes. So just interesting stuff to think about from a structural perspective. Now, I've spoken about structure here and maybe some of the misconceptions around structural structural origins of pain but i want to talk a little bit more about the sort of emotion and psychology around pain as well so um one two of the the things that you often see when someone gets an injury uh catastrophizing that injury uh, which basically means you start to imagine the worst possible outcomes you magnify the threat of a pain signal you start to maybe feel a bit helpless as a result of that. And you start to anticipate pain or really ruminate on pain. Like you constantly think about it. And I've experienced all of this stuff as well with, with my lower back injuries. Um, coming from that, or maybe even separate from that sometimes is what we call kinesiophobia, which is essentially fear of movement. Uh, sometimes we kind of find that not performing certain movements for a while is a good thing. You know, if you've, for example, had a maybe like a shoulder reconstruction or you've broken a rib or something like that, then for a temporary amount of time, avoiding certain movements might be the wisest idea to help your pain or your, your injury heal and then you experience a bit less pain. But often avoiding movement out of fear of pain actually sensitizes you to pain. And you'll see that now that the Methods for dealing with, with things like surgery recovery, for example, or, or a lot of injuries, if you go to a physiotherapist, they often get you doing low load movements, right? Because they want to keep you moving. They want, it's, it's often actually less about strengthening areas and more about just demonstrating to your brain that like, hey, this movement is safe. I can put force through these tissues and it's fine. And it helps to tune that alarm signal. So when we catastrophize and we imagine the worst possible outcome, um, uh, we sort of magnify the threat of that pain signal and we can start to anticipate pain when doing certain movements. And that might lead to kinesiophobia where we get this fear of movement and not performing certain movements. But often that actually just sensitizes us more to the pain and it's not as helpful as possible. Now, like I said before, you don't always want to just be like, oh, well, pain doesn't exist. It's just in my head and I'm going to therefore go out and do, you know, squat as heavy as I normally do when I've got lower back pain. That That's not necessarily the answer, but... Uh, we just have to understand that these are two really common things that happen when people get an injury. Now, there's different ways that people can cope when they get an injury or when they experience pain. One way of doing it is avoidance coping, where they tend to avoid movements or activities that might lead to pain. And like I said, over time, this can sensitize you to painful stimuli. Uh, it, it can also start to make things worse because you then participate less in meaningful activities like socializing or physical activities and that can affect your mood and your social life and we've already spoken about how those things can contribute to your perception of pain like it can fill up your bucket the opposite of that is persistence coping which is kind of where you ignore pain or you push through it and uh, you know that's that's often associated with doing more like uh i've heard this quote before from a prominent back researcher back pain researcher 
And he said, well, if you're getting back pain, then you deserve your pain, which is horrible. But what he means is like, you're not doing enough to deal with your, with your back pain. You're not doing enough corrective exercises or you're not actively bracing your core or this and that. And this is just a horrible attitude to have towards pain. So you see a lot of people end up with persistence coping where they basically either ignore their pain and they push through it to their detriment or they sort of try to do too much for their pain. So an example would be actively bracing your core when you're sitting or I have to move in a certain way or I have to stand in a certain way all the time. Otherwise, my pain's going to come back. And the problem with this is that if you do all of these things, but you still experience pain, then you can start to habituate yourself to new triggers of pain. So for example, you might teach your brain that actively bracing your core actually doesn't make your back feel better. And therefore, it starts to associate actively bracing your core with back pain. And so now your brain associates the two and that makes more situations where you experience pain, which makes it a little bit more difficult to deal with, right? So both of these strategies where you try to avoid certain movements or activities or you try to push through and add in more activities can sometimes be helpful for sure. Sometimes we do need to avoid certain movements for a certain period of time. Sometimes we do need to do more for our pain in terms of exercise selection or whatever it is, but a balance is needed. And I find that often people go a little bit too extreme with either of those coping strategies. Now, just to kind of segue from that, because we have been talking a bit about, um, you know, using exercise to help with pain. There's this common belief that muscle tightness or a lack of strength is like directly causative of injury. And this might be true in some cases, like if you, you know, have a one RM squat of 100 kilos and you put 200 kilos on and try and squat, like, yeah, you might hurt yourself for sure. But generally speaking, in the majority of cases, flexibility and muscle strength is not strongly associated with pain based on the literature anyway. So firstly, muscle strength is obviously required for activities where high levels of force are experienced. Like if you're stronger and you're playing like professional level rugby, like obviously having a bit more strength in your tissues can be helpful to uh, deal with those high levels of force. But common activities like, you know, tying your shoes and opening a cupboard and picking up, you know, a package from the post office and carrying it home and things like that, they don't produce large amounts of force. And so we, we, we don't really expect that things like that really require much more strength. And I find it a sort of interesting idea because if you go to some sort of rehab specialist, what you often hear is like, oh, you're experiencing pain when, uh, you know, when you pick something up or when you bend over or when you reach for something. Uh, and part of the cause of your pain is that you're not strong enough in this muscle or that muscle, or you're not flexible enough, which is kind of funny because those tasks don't really require any strength, um, that well, not more than what the average person really uses. Right. So it's kind of this strange dichotomy saying that you need to be stronger to not experience pain from sitting or tying your shoes or something like that. So we have to kind of put that in perspective. And similarly, you know, flexibility, it's actually very poorly correlated with pain as well. Firstly, I mean, it's not an objective. Like if someone says I have tight hip flexors, like we have these arbitrary standards for that sometimes. If someone does a bit of muscle testing and goes, oh yeah, your hip flexors are really tight. Um, yeah, compared to what, <laughs> you know? And for what? Like if you're not going through that range of motion regularly, is it really necessary to be that flexible? 
So anyway, flexibility is not really objective and it's poorly correlated with pain. Um, now, with that said, I've just spoken about muscle strength and flexibility not really mattering that much for for direct cause of injury. But exercise is a really, really powerful analgesic, uh, an analgesic being like a pain reliever. So um, strength and flexibility training can definitely help improve function. It can obviously strengthen tissues. It has benefits outside of pain management, like it obviously has mental benefits. It might improve your body composition. It might enable you to do stuff that's fun. It might improve your ability to perform certain tasks. You might have personal beliefs around exercise like, oh, I'm training my glutes and I can feel them getting stronger. And I think that's going to contribute to, you know, my back pain, uh, improving my back pain. Like that stuff's all pretty powerful. So I certainly think that exercise is a, is one of our primary tools that we can use to improve the experience of pain and to protect against injury, but it's probably not as much of a factor as many people think for what they're told, you know, common exercises like sitting and posture and day-to-day tasks. Uh, you're unlikely to get injured during those just because you're not strong enough, so to speak. So I guess the idea here is that Stress is a good thing in general. Stress is not inherently bad. We are inherently strong and we are inherently stable. Most of the physical activities we do day to day are very far below the forces that we need to alter tissues or cause structural damage to tissues. And so with that said, uh, training stress is good. You know, resuming activity is really important for recovery. Like your, your body's super highly adaptable and it responds very positively to stresses unless they're completely overwhelming, you know, obviously our adaptability is limited, but we can generally improve when we're presented with some kind of stressor. So when we're trying to deal with an injury or pain, it's really important that we don't avoid movement, that we give our body an opportunity to sort of adapt and uh, respond positively to to a stressor like training. Um, but I think sort of building up tolerance is also important. So graded exposure is really one of the primary things that we want to think about. Uh, basically, nothing's off limits long term. So sometimes when people get an injury, they kind of wonder, oh, am I ever going to be able to do this again? Am I ever going to be the same again? Maybe you tear your hamstring. Am I ever going to be as fast again or agile or be able to um, build my muscle. I think it's important to think that nothing's really off limits long term. You just need the graded exposure to get back to that level again. You can't go necessarily go straight back to what you were doing before, but you want to build up your tolerance and resilience and, and essentially build a bigger bucket, so to speak. So I've spoken about how you can have these psychological and social contributors to pain. And sometimes part of the sort of rehab process or dealing with pain and injuries is actually building your bucket, so to speak, having strategies to deal with those non-physical stresses as well. Um, so now we get to the, the more practical perspective on things. Hopefully this has so far maybe challenged some of your beliefs and given you some food for thought. But I think that when we move forward, the best way to go about things is as follows. Firstly, if you get pain, you want to sort of start to think about when is pain okay? When is it reasonable? Like if I've been on a long flight and my neck really hurts afterwards, I kind of expect that. Like, yeah, dude, of course it hurts. I've been stuck in the same position for 16 hours trying to sleep in a chair. Of course my neck's a bit sore. It's probably going to be fine in a couple of days. Does something hurting mean that there's damage or that there's harm being done? 
Not necessarily, right? We sort of experience pain and discomfort all the time during the day, and we don't necessarily expect it to lead to long-term pain or discomfort, right? We want to use pain as a guide instead. So we want to investigate the alarm. We don't want to avoid it altogether, but we also don't want to catastrophize. When your smoke alarm goes off, you don't automatically assume there's a house fire. You kind of go, oh, probably burnt the toast again, or maybe it's run out of battery or something like that, and that's why it's beeping. Let me go check it out and see what's going on. So I think kind of investigating the alarm is good. You don't want to avoid it altogether, but you also want to not sort of catastrophize immediately. There should be a really big focus on self-efficacy. So using some kind of therapist or modality can help you along the way. Um, I've certainly had positive experiences with going and getting some massage or some active release therapy or seeing a chiropractor or something like that. But you also have to recognize that if you do see a therapist or you use a certain modality, it can help you and it can maybe help you to manage your pain in the short term, but you don't want it to become a crutch. You don't want to start associating like, oh, the only way I can stay pain-free is by visiting my chiropractor once a week or something. You want to build self-efficacy, being able to manage your, your sort of pain on your own. And just while I'm on that, actually, I might have a, a brief aside. Uh, different modalities are going to have different approaches and every person you see is going to kind of look at a pain or, or an injury through their own lens of their own training and own experience. So just be aware that like if you see you know, five different practitioners for the same injury, you might get five slightly different responses to that and different explanations as to why it is the way it is. None of those are necessarily right or wrong. It's just kind of like whoever you vibe with the best, whichever supports your own beliefs the best, those are often the ones that'll get you the best outcome. So just bear that in mind as well. Um, so we want to focus on self-efficacy. Next, we also want to just understand that pain is really complicated. There are biological factors for sure, but there are also social and lifestyle factors that can all contribute to pain. So my general approach is like, especially if you have some kind of acute injury, like you tear a hamstring or whatever it is, um, there's often not a lot you can do aside from the graded exposure and giving the injury time to heal. Uh, but in the meantime, there are other things you could potentially work on to build the size of your bucket to make sure that it doesn't overflow and cause you an excessive amount of pain. You can just simply ask yourself, how can I be healthier? And that might involve managing your stress a bit better. It might involve spending more time on your relationships. It might involve active stress management like meditation or journaling or just spending more time chilling out and doing your hobbies. It might involve cleaning up your nutrition a bit or getting to bed on time. There's lots of different stuff that can potentially contribute to pain. Uh, and so we want to just kind of deal with all of those potential factors as best we can. So a little bit of a self-audit can always be helpful. If you get a tissue injury, you want to consider if what you've been told is relevant to your pain. Uh, for most people, strength and flexibility are not always relevant. Working on them might help for sure, but I don't want you to see that as a panacea or the one roadblock to improving your pain. The way you move is not always relevant either. Sometimes it might sensitize you to pain, but sometimes it might not. From a mental health perspective, be aware of fear, of catastrophizing, anxiety and frustration. Those things can all contribute to your pain. Uh, it's normal to feel those things, but I think recognizing if they start to get a little bit out of your control, that maybe seeking some help can be 
a really good move, whether that's psychological help or just turning to your social support network. We can also self-audit our lifestyle, our sleep, our stress, our work-life balance, those sorts of things. We can self-audit our coping mechanism. Do we tend to have an avoidance coping mechanism where we avoid certain movements, avoid certain behaviors out of fear of them causing us pain? Or do we have more of a persistence style of coping where we try and push through and add in more things and more things and more things uh, until our warm-up ends up being an hour long and this sort of thing? And I think also just self-auditing your personal beliefs, just understanding like, is what I believe around pain really true? Uh, does the evidence bear that out? Or am I maybe creating some sort of belief system here that's not being helpful for me? Now, when it comes to return to exercise, there's basically three ways that I tend to approach something. So like if you get a little bit of pain doing a certain movement, Here's what I tend to do, just from a really practical point of view. So aside from all of the uh, mental health and lifestyle kind of things, like what do you do from an exercise point of view? Okay, let's say uh, my shoulder hurts from a barbell overhead press. What do you do in that case? How should you manage it? Well, one of the first things I do is go, okay, well, can I do the same movement but reduce the load? And does that feel better? If it does, cool, go ahead and do that. The next thing you could do is maybe reduce the range of motion. Oh, okay, every time I get all the way to the top, I feel a bit of a pinch in my shoulder. Okay, well, can I do the same exercise with a slightly reduced range of motion and feel okay? And then slowly build up my range of motion again? Sure, okay, cool. Maybe just do that. The third thing you can do is obviously substitute the exercise for something similar that trains the same muscle groups. Maybe the barbell overhead press causes pinching in my shoulder, but if I switch to dumbbells, it feels fine. Cool, that's another strategy you can use there. The general approach that I tend to take is that pain is not always a bad thing um, and we shouldn't be afraid of pain, but we also don't want to sensitize ourselves to pain by just leaning into it too much. So I use a general guideline of if you've experienced an injury or some pain before while training, if you go in and you do some stuff and it's kind of like a two or a three out of 10 in terms of pain or discomfort and that doesn't get worse after the session, then you can keep doing whatever you're doing. Uh, if it gets worse over time, then maybe look at some of those strategies I just listed, either changing the exercise, changing the range of motion, or changing the load, and slowly building up again. Uh, you know, graded exposure. And um, that's probably your, your best sort of approach. So, yeah, hopefully this has been insightful, a bit of a longer one, but I feel like just getting some of those ideas out there can be an impetus for you to do some of your your own research, maybe challenge some of your own beliefs. I hope it's given some food for thought and helped a little bit because there is a really a bad narrative out there in a lot of social media and just, I suppose, general beliefs around pain that's probably like 20 years behind the research, so to speak. Um, but I hope it's helpful. Uh, please let me know. If so, you can always contact me. My Instagram is at underscore Luke Tullick. Visit my website, LukeTullick.com. Um, give me a rating, <laughs> keep an eye out for future episodes. I'm going to keep trying to get these out a bit more regularly and have a great day. Chat soon.